If it's Tuesday, President Biden hits the road trying to hit Republicans on domestic issues like health care as he navigates a web of foreign threats and growing bipartisan concern over China. Plus, a rare look inside Russian-occupied Crimea as war rages in Ukraine. NBC's Keir Simmons and his team are the first Western journalists to report from that hostile region since the Russian invasion. And the fate of hundreds of billions of dollars in student loan relief now in the hands of the nine justices as the Supreme Court hears arguments challenging the legality of the White House's sweeping loan forgiveness plan. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Kristen Welker in Washington. President Biden just wrapped up an address in Virginia Beach on the issue of health care as he tries to turn the focus back to his domestic agenda while looking ahead to 2024. In his remarks, the president took some shots at Republicans, specifically so-called MAGA Republicans, and he criticized the GOP for its years-long efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. They continue to fight to cut the Affordable Care Act and make health insurance more expensive for millions of Americans. Republicans have been trying to undo the Affordable Care Act since it passed 13 years ago. They voted to change and repeal the act. It's a fact on the record more than 50 times in four years. Let's be clear about the consequences. If you get rid of the Affordable Care Act, it would mean that more than 100 million Americans with pre-existing conditions would lose the critical protections they have now. As the president tries to go on offense against Republicans on domestic policy issues, he also faces an array of complex challenges tied to U.S. national security and foreign policy from an expanding war in Ukraine to a deteriorating relationship with China. Both were in focus today in Washington with U.S. officials from the Pentagon, State Department and other agencies testifying before Congress during a pair of hearings on Capitol Hill. And in just a few hours, the House's new select committee on China will hold its first hearing in prime time on Beijing's threats to the U.S. We'll speak with one of the committee members later this hour. It all comes as Belarus's president, Viktor Lukashenko, one of Vladimir Putin's closest allies, heads to Beijing. Amid U.S. concerns, China may be preparing to provide lethal aid to Russia. Today in Kazakhstan, Secretary of State Tony Blinken once again warned China against helping the Kremlin. China can't have it both ways when it comes to um, when it comes to the Russian aggression in Ukraine. It can't be putting forward peace proposals on the one hand, while actually feeding the flames of the fire that Russia has started uh, with the other hand. So I hope that China will take what we said very seriously, but not only what we said, what many other countries around the world are saying, and refrain from uh, any further consideration of materially supporting Russia in the war effort. NBC's Mike Memoli is with the president in Virginia Beach. And NBC's Garrett Hake joins us from Capitol Hill, where the House China Select Committee is gearing up for that first hearing. Mike, let's start with you, because, of course, the president had been focused on foreign policy for a couple of weeks. He was in Poland last week, now putting the focus on domestic policy in Virginia Beach, talking health care. What did you hear from the president? What were your key takeaways? I know you framed this entire trip as kind of the core of one of his key campaign promises. Yeah, that's right, Kristen. Obviously, the president spending a lot of time last week on foreign policy, the anniversary of Russia's invasion in Ukraine. But now he's back to the budget. This is the number one 
policy clash that he's going to be having with congressional Republicans over the course of the year. And he's very slowly and deliberately making a case against what Republicans at least might put on the table. I emphasize might because that's really what the strategy is here. Republicans have not put out their budget blueprint just yet. And so in the absence of that, he's pointing to votes they've taken in the past, proposals they've put forward in other settings to say, here's what they're likely to talk about. Here's what they're likely to want to cut in order to meet their spending reduction targets. And these are all areas that he would argue are unpopular and and against the interests of middle-class Americans. It's really been interesting, Kristen, as we look ahead to 2024, to see the way in which this has translated in Biden's travels since the State of the Union address. The first stop he made was in Wisconsin, talking to union voters, talking about the importance of his initiatives like the infrastructure law, the Chips and Science Act, which will lead to a resurgence of manufacturing in this country. Then he went to Florida to talk to seniors primarily about the threats to Social Security and Medicare that he believes are at risk if Republicans have their way in sunsetting, as Rick Scott has put forward, some of those proposals. And today, coming to a battleground congressional district, one that Republicans actually picked up, uh, beat a Democratic incumbent last fall, to talk about the Affordable Care Act. This was the heart of Democrats' 2018 midterm campaign message, and it was at the heart of President Biden's lead up to the 2024 message saying if Republicans once again would try to repeal the Affordable Care Act, that would mean millions of Americans losing insurance, losing protections to their health care that are in that law. It's all a very deliberate effort by the president to shore up and to speak to what he considers the pillars of the Biden electoral coalition. And it's a strategy we're going to continue to see played out and certainly in the months ahead, Chris. And Mike, we so appreciate your powering through despite the music blaring behind you, as is so often at those events. So just give us a preview before we go to Capitol Hill. Can we expect to see more of President Biden on the road and kind of highlighting these core parts of his principles in the run up to what we anticipate will be an announcement that he's running for re-election soon? Yeah, well, one indication of the president's eagerness for a campaign is the fact that he finished speaking 25, 30 minutes ago, and I just hooked over my shoulder. He is still working the rope line, Kristen. This is going to be a big part of how he campaigns in 2024. That direct uh, interaction with voters is so important to him. White House officials are telling me that he is going to be really zeroed in on the budget for the next few weeks. He releases his own budget blueprint next month, uh, excuse me, next week, March 9th, in fact. And then we should look toward April. That's when, at the moment, the working timeline is for the president to make that potential announcement. I've had some advisors point to the anniversary of when he announced in 2019, which was late April, uh, as sort of an indication of where things might be heading at the moment, Chris. Yeah, Mike, I have April circled as well. We'll keep an eye on those dates you just mapped out. Garrett, let me go to you, because obviously the president in Virginia Beach focusing on domestic policy, but the Biden administration, his secretary of state, focused on China. And of course, the China Select Committee is going to hold its first hearing tonight in prime time, which is notable. This is really the first hearing of its kind. And the thinking is that this is an issue that can and that has garnered bipartisan support. The goal, I'm told, is for this to be a truly bipartisan committee. What is the anticipation of what we expect to see from tonight? 
Well, tonight's hearing is going to take largely a 30,000-foot view, Kristen. The committee wants to set the stage for what they hope will be productive bipartisan hearings, reports, and perhaps legislative recommendations over the course of this Congress about how the U.S. competes with China. Now, the committee's chair has made it clear he's not talking about competition like a friendly tennis match. He sees this as a competition that encompasses hard military power, kind of economic influence, both around the world and in between these specific nations, and on issues of intelligence, things like what do we do about TikTok? What do we do about spy balloons? There's a kind of a broad spectrum of issues that this committee wants to dig into, and they do want to do it on a bipartisan basis. I talked to Speaker McCarthy about this just today, who said that he consulted with Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, even as they were figuring out who all they were going to name to this committee, because they wanted to make sure they put serious legislators on it. it you know, the, the expectations are, are somewhat high that this could be the kind of prestige committee in this Congress to focus on an issue. It's one of the few things that, at least in the House, Democrats and Republicans largely agree on, the growing threat from the Chinese Communist Party. Absolutely, Garrett. One of the things that there has been disagreement on, the origins of COVID. As you know, the Department of Energy put out its findings over the weekend mm -hmm. with low confidence that they believe it may have mistakenly leaked from a lab in Wuhan. Do you anticipate that will be a focus tonight at all? I know you talked about the fact that this is going to be a 30,000-foot mm -hmm. look at relations between the U.S. and China. And, and, of course, it comes amid ongoing reaction on Capitol Hill to the DOE's findings. No, Kristen. I think that the findings from the DOE's report are going to get significant congressional oversight, but probably not from this committee, at least not at first. Mike Gallagher, the chairman, has indicated that when it comes to COVID, he's more interested in getting into the questions of a cover-up. What did China know about where COVID came from, and what did they do to prevent the rest of the world from finding out whether it was a naturally evolved virus, whether it escaped for a lab, whether it was engineered in some capacity? He's less interested on, on the foundations of where COVID came from, but how the Chinese government might have hidden that information, how they might have exerted their power, again, soft and hard around the world to, to manage that information flow. So I think we're going to see plenty of congressional oversight on that question of a potential lab leak. It's been a hot topic of conversation since House members have been back, but I'd be surprised if it takes up more than a, you know, a couple of questions perhaps here and there in tonight's hearing. Well, I know you will be watching it closely, a late night for you on Capitol Hill. Garrett Hake, thank you so much for your great Great reporting. Mike Memley, thank you for your fantastic. This is the Democratic Senator from Connecticut, Chris Murphy. Senator Murphy, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So China obviously in the spotlight, the new China Select Committee holding a primetime hearing tonight, the first of its kind. And it comes as the Biden administration is warning China against providing lethal aid to Russia. In fact, as you know, Jake Sullivan told Chuck on Sunday, the U.S. had not yet seen evidence that China was doing that. So I'm curious, what is your level of concern at this very moment that China may actually provide that lethal aid to Russia? I think it's extraordinary that China has provided no military aid to Russia during the first year of the Ukraine war. This is um, a country, China, that declared there would be no limits to its partnership with Russia at the beginning of the war, but it has been effective U.S. diplomacy, in part, that has convinced China to stand down. Now, Russia is at a uniquely vulnerable moment right now. They simply don't have 
the ammunition, the equipment, the supplies, the technology to keep this war up for another year. And the only place they can really go for what they need is to China. Now, unfortunately, China has an interest in keeping this conflict going, right? China benefits if the United States and Russia are at each other's throats, if we're draining our treasuries, fighting each other, at least through proxies. Uh, and so there's a clear interest that China may have in supplying these weapons, but we've got to make it clear to China that there will be significant uh, consequences to their economy um, if they make this decision so, to start flowing weapons there. So, and Senator, the administration has said there will be consequences. I hear you saying there should be sanctions if China does in fact take this move, supplying lethal aid to Russia. Anything not, else? I, yeah, I think I w will be willing to work with the administration on whatever set of consequences they think are most impactful. I don't necessarily think we need to pre-announce what those would be. Um, but China has held back weapons supplies to Ukraine thus far because they know that those consequences are real. And China's just going to have to weigh whether the benefit of this war continuing for another year to them is worth the price of deeper fissures in the relationship between the United States and China. Senator, the Biden administration has been clear that this is a concern for them, even though they haven't seen China take this step yet. I wonder, do you think the administration should declassify the intelligence so that the American public can understand the source of their concern? I think this is different than the information we had about uh, Russia's intentions to invade Ukraine. I, I don't think it would shock anybody in America to learn that China is thinking about supplying weapons to Russia. Again, they announced that this was going to be a deep integrated partnership between these two countries at the outset of the war. So um, at, at the moment when they declassified the intelligence about the invasion, there was a lot of skepticism all around the world that Russia was really going to go forward with it. I don't think there's that same skepticism about China's intentions. Well, I, I hear you, Senator, and yet these are quite serious accusations that the administration is leveling against China. In fact, ones that you could argue are adding to the tensions between the two nations. Why not, given, as you point out, that they did declassify the intelligence before Russia invaded Ukraine. Why not do it now? Why not be as transparent as possible with the American public as they make this case? Well, I mean, that was an exceptional situation, right? Um, you literally had our allies in Europe disbelieving that the Russians were intent on invading Ukraine. This is just a fundamentally different situation. And the reason that we don't declassify intelligence is because it often um, betrays our sources and methods. We were willing to take that chance because of the exceptional disbelief in Europe about Russia's intentions to invade. That disbelief just simply doesn't exist here, and so there's not the reason to potentially compromise the ways in which we get our intelligence. Senator, have you seen the intelligence just before we move on? I haven't seen the raw okay. intelligence. I, I, and, and just to be clear, I rarely ever see the raw intelligence. What we see is the analysis from the administration, and I trust the analysis we get from the Biden administration. Okay, let's move on to these new findings by the Department of Energy, which has assessed with low confidence that COVID was likely the result of an accidental lab leak in Wuhan. Uh, yet the White House has repeatedly said yesterday, look, there's just no broad consensus on where COVID originated. What do you make of the findings by the DOE? What should the American people take from it? I think we may never know with high confidence where 
this virus began. You have very respected experts that are sure that it came or very confident it came from uh, animal sources. You now have the Department of Energy suggesting with low confidence they believe it came from uh, a lab. Um, what I know is that China withheld critical information at the beginning of the spread of this virus and that it frankly argues not for less integration between the U.S. and China, but for more integration between the United States and China on public health defense so that we have access to information as early as possible when a virus breaks out somewhere around the world. Senator, let's move on to Ukraine. President Zelensky has called for F-16 fighter jets. President Biden says he's not sending them right now. A lot of your colleagues there on Capitol Hill say that's the wrong move. They say that the administration is giving President Zelensky enough aid to stay in the war, but not to win the war. What say you? Should the Biden administration provide the F-16 fighter jets? So our first responsibility as a Congress is to defend our nation. Uh, and we want to make sure we flow as much weaponry to Ukraine um, as we can without harming our ability to defend ourselves and our treaty allies. Remember, we have treaty obligations with NATO partners who are also in line for many of these same uh, weapon systems. And so we are getting to a critical point in which we are potentially compromising uh, American security and treaty ally security. And so on these F-16s, I think the president is just making a judgment right now that they are not immediately necessary. But I hear you for, saying they may the be fight. necessary. I hear you and, saying they may be necessary, that he should be open to setting them potentially. Well, I, I, I agree with the president's assessment that right now that this is not the most important weapon system for Ukraine and that right now sending these planes potentially jeopardizes the security of this country and of our treaty allies. And that's the balance that the president always has to be engaged in. OK, understood. Let's move on to 2024, Senator. There was a op-ed in the New York Times yesterday that got a lot of people's attention. It essentially called for delegates to choose the vice presidential nominee. Let me read you part of it. It says, quote, allowing Democratic voters to pick the vice presidential nominee might address the Democrats' enthusiasm gap. If the status quo continues, no one on the Democratic side will excite or inspire a crowd. What do you make of that? Would you support such a move to have the vice presidential nominee chosen by delegates? I don't know. I haven't read that article. I don't really have a reaction to it. Um, what I see is a lot of enthusiasm out there for Democratic priorities. And what I see is a you know pretty um, amazing track record of success from this president. Um, when I was out there on the campaign trail this fall, I saw Democrats and young voters uh, turning out for rallies and for um, door knock and canvas events at pretty extraordinary numbers. And you saw recent information from swing states suggesting that young voters were turning out at levels comparable to 2018. So I'm not sure that I buy that there's a huge yawning enthusiasm gap between the two parties. I don't really know much about this proposal. I'd have to look into it before passing judgment. All right. Well, Senator Murphy, let me ask you this. Do you believe President Biden is the future of the Democratic Party, the strongest person to represent Democrats in 2024? Absolutely. I'm rooting for President Biden to run. Uh, I'm pushing for him to run. I think he is our strongest candidate. I think Donald Trump is likely the Republican candidate. I don't buy this narrative that the Republican Party has moved on. And I think there's no question that Joe Biden, with his record of success, with his ability to connect with the American people and with his history of beating Donald Trump in the past, is our best candidate. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much for stopping by to discuss a range of topics. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
Next, Election Day blows into the Windy City. Chicago's incumbent Democratic mayor faces a crowded field of challengers in a race that's highlighting a big issue for big city mayors. Plus, exit stage right. What it means that some top Republicans are skipping the upcoming conservative political action conference. We'll delve into it. You're watching Meet the Press now. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today. Welcome back. As we like to say on this show, if it's Tuesday, somebody is voting somewhere. And today that somewhere is Chicago, where Mayor Lori Lightfoot is fighting for her political survival. She's one of nine candidates on the nonpartisan ballot for mayor. Crime and policing have dominated the campaign with candidates hitting Mayor Lightfoot from the right and from the left. It has put her in the perilous position of potentially becoming the first incumbent Chicago mayor to lose reelection in decades. Now, if no candidate gets a majority in today's balloting and with such a large and divided field, that is a highly likely scenario. The second city will move to a second election on April 4th with the top two vote getters going head to head. The stakes could not be higher. NBC's Natasha Karecki has been following the race in Chicago. She joins me now. So, Natasha, this is just a huge field. This is a really tough road for Mayor Lightfoot. So just set the stage. Paul Vallis seems to be her closest rival. What are the stakes here? Sure. As you say, it's a nine-way race. And actually, there's only one white candidate, and that's Paul Vallis. And right now, conventional wisdom is the polling points to this, the momentum points to this. It points to Paul Vallis getting through this first round of voting. And as you said, there needs to be a majority um, vote for for somebody to win outright tonight. That's not expected. Um, it is expected that Paul Vallis will get through. The question is, who is the other candidate? Um, and what's remarkable here is somewhat stunning is that the sitting mayor right now is the underdog. She may not make it through. And it's it's uh, there's all kinds of forces right now that are causing this, and the chief among them is crime. Well, so let me follow up with you on that point, because Mayor Lightfoot ran on a platform four years ago saying that she would tackle that very issue. Uh, what what has happened in those four years that has made her so vulnerable? Just explain to our viewers how we got here. Sure. She, she came into office, as you said, in 2019, promising change. Well, what ended up happening? Shootings went way up. Homicides went way up. Actually, 25-year high in homicides in 2019. 
people are feeling it. They're feeling it all over Chicago. Uh, for a long time in Chicago, it was known as, you know, the South Side and the West Sides where, you know, that's where the crime happened. Well, it is everywhere. It's permeated every community. People are really feeling it at home and they are frustrated. A recent poll actually showed that 63% of Chicagoans said they do not feel safe right now. So this is an overwhelming issue that's really driving people. And uh, Paul Vallis has come out very hard and very strong on an anti-crime platform. He wants to hire a lot of police officers. He's pushing that. And he also got the endorsement of the FOP. And that's what's really sort of driving him yeah. to the top of the top of the list right now. Yeah. And Mayor Lightfoot has clashed with a number of the unions as well. Natasha, thanks for your great reporting. I know you're going to watch it closely for us. Joining me now on set, we have a power panel. Lisa Desjardins, correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Simone Sanders Townsend, former senior advisor to Vice President Harris and host of Simone on MSNBC. And Sarah Chamberlain, president and CEO of the Republican Main Street Partnership. Thanks to all of you for being here. We have a lot to unpack. Simone, let's start in Chicago because you heard Natasha lay out the stakes here. And the big issue is crime. Yet again, is this a warning for Democrats heading into 2024 that this issue is going to be front and center. It's not going away. Uh, yes and no. Look, I think that a mayor's race is very different than a governor's race. And when you think about mayors across this country um, post-pandemic, the mayors are dealing with a lot and they're, they don't have a lot of good answers for folks. Downtowns from Washington, D.C. to Chicago to Los Angeles have been gutted. People are not in their offices like they used to. Mayors have to get creative about what to do with those spaces and how car, it's not just in Chicago that we're hearing about carjackings and break-ins and robberies. It's happening here in Washington, D.C. It's happening all over the country. And so being a mayor is hard and the realities of governing post-pandemic, I think, are coming home to roost for Lori Lightfoot. Lisa, one of the lessons from the midterms for Democrats, at least in those final closing weeks, is that crime did matter to voters. Now, as Simone points out, it might be a more complicated picture by the time mm -hmm. we get to 2024. But do you think the Democrats are watching this and saying maybe we need to start talking about these issues earlier on? Yes, and not just Democrats, because I think Republicans regret that they didn't go even harder mm -hmm. on the crime. They believe that they might have had maybe a larger majority in the House, for example, if they had used the models that they used in some New York districts more widely across the country. So I think that this is a political strategy we're going to see, not just in House races, but probably in the presidential. Sarah, what do you make of that? You're absolutely right. We're already talking about that as Republicans, that we need to go harder on crime. Our cities are in chaos. We had a we have a member of Main Street whose uh, team got robbed at gunpoint in the middle of the day here mm. in, in uh, D.C., down the Navy Yard. So this is a crisis going on. I'm not surprised to see in Chicago that she's in trouble because she did promise to fix it. Um, but this is a crisis. Philadelphia, it's all over. All of our major cities. I mean, it's happening in Miami as well. I would just yeah. say, I think that the, the thing that I took from the midterm elections was that crime is an umbrella term. And the mm. question is, what do you mean when we're talking about crime? Some folks mean we're talking about public safety. For some folks, they are talking about, well, what are we doing to uh, give resources Sources for some of the homelessness, mm -hmm. all of these other pieces. And so I think that also, I guess, as, as the Republicans are having their conversations, Democrats got to get clear on what kind of language they
they want to use. Right. Yeah, and I bet they'll be watching this race closely mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Chicago tonight. Lisa, let's talk about CPAC. All right. I- interesting this week, um, the Conservative Political Action Conference. These are the names that are not going to be there. Okay, Former President Trump will be there. Nikki Haley will be there. Ron DeSantis won't be there. Kevin McCarthy, Ronna McDaniel will not be there. Now, let's just give the broader perspective that the chairman is being sued for allegations of sexual mm-hmm. conduct, which he denies. But what does this exodus mean heading into 2024? I don't think we've ever seen a CPAC like this. No, that's right. But I also think that it is part of the Republican search for identity and also perhaps the fickleness of some conservatives trying to find their home. Trump has always been a big draw for his base. And there's never there isn't any other part of the Republican Party that has as concentrated of a base. And I think that you see at CPAC, the people who are staying are the most hardcore Trump people like Carrie Lake, who will be speaking. How about Brazilian President Bolsonaro, mm, whose right. who's supporters like January 6th tried to raid their parliament there as well. So it's it's a very Trump like atmosphere there. And the party, some of the party wants to move away from Trump. That's why you see this sort of back and forth moment at CPAC. Sarah, is this just highlighting the divide within the Republican Party heading into 2024, because you do see some of these potential candidates speaking at the Club for Growth, Mm -hmm. for example. Right. So a lot of them have decided to go to the Club for Growth. I I agree with you. I think CPAC has become very mega. And some obviously elected Republicans are mega and some are choosing to be a wider scope. And that's why they're choosing to go to Club for Growth. Is that the divide now in the party, kind of the populist Trump DeSantis branch? DeSantis is going to Club for Growth versus the tranche of Republicans who are see themselves as conservative, the old guard, and trying to bring some of those. I wouldn't say back. it's a huge divide yet. Okay. I think you will see them all come back together once we have a presidential candidate. Simone, how are Democrats viewing this and the fact that you have all of those Republicans who I just listed who are not going to be at CPAC? Because, as you know, that's a big event every year, a big annual event. Look, I think a lot of Democrats are waiting to see who else jumps into the race, right? Mm -hmm. We we have Nikki Haley. We have Donald Trump. But there's conversation about uh, Tim Scott, right? There's conversation about uh, Pompeo. So many other individuals and obviously Ron DeSantis, who's the favorite on everybody's list right now. I happen to think that Ron DeSantis this is Scott Walker of 2024. Mm. We, we shall see. You heard it here first. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. Those are my thoughts. Um, w- one of the Scott things, Walker's going to call you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things that we noted, Ron DeSantis has a new book that is out. Um, he's mentions former President Trump about 100 times in this book. He does not criticize him. Sarah, is that the smart way to go against Trump? Because Trump's already hitting Ron DeSantis hard. He's got a nickname for him, Ron DeSanctimonious. I know, I know. or Meatball or whatever he calls him. Um, yeah, I think it's a great way to go at it. Ignore him for now. Go out, do your book tour, which is kind of, I think, the soft um, announcement for him for presidential to see how the American people respond. But yes. I think for him, the right strategy is right now to ignore Trump. So other Republicans are essentially declining to differentiate themselves from the former president. I want to play some sound, get your reaction on the other side. What specific policy areas would you would you say part with Donald Trump? What I am saying is I don't kick sideways. I'm kicking forward. Joe Biden is the president. He's the one I'm running against. And what I'm saying is you don't have to be 80 years old to be president. What are the differences in terms of policy positions that, for example, you may have with President Trump? 
Probably not very many at all. I, I am so thankful that we have President Trump in office. Can you delineate just one policy difference that you might have with him? Well, I think the times call for different leadership. Lisa, is that sustainable? I mean, do these candidates have to start drawing firm, and potential candidates, I should say, have to start drawing firm lines and early when they get into the race? Not yet. I think once we get to two, three debates in and somebody is starting to emerge as candidates two and three, then you might see sort of like a Kamala Harris really make a move. But I think right now they don't need to. Sarah, what do you think? Is that tough enough to go up against Trump? It is right now. And but the polling shows amongst the Republicans that they liked his policies. Right. They questioned the man. Um, but a lot of his policies they approve of and they still approve of. Right. So I think it's smart for them to be talking about And grassroots that. members of the, some grassroots members of the Republican Party who are mad at, folks are going to need those votes. And so why hit Donald Trump when you don't have to? Right. Yeah, clearly they are holding out for as long as they can. Simone, I have to ask you about this op-ed in the New York Times. I asked Senator Murphy. Oh, my God. Yes, I was listening he to the said interview. He did not want to weigh in. It essentially <laughs> says delegates should pick the vice presidential nominee. Uh, your old boss is the vice president. H how do you think they're viewing that inside uh, her office? I think any any I think any Democrat or anyone who has ever worked a convention or is familiar with how delegates get selected thinks this is a crazy idea. I don't know if Mr. Craig uh, is aware of the process here, but you run to be elected as a delegate in some places and. I, could you imagine if no. delegates were picking, picking in the Republican no, Party? No. Honey, Marjorie Taylor Greene might end up on, on the they ticket. agree. we got to no. leave it there. <laughs> Thanks so much for a fantastic conversation. We really appreciate it. Lisa, Simone, and Sarah appreciate it. Next, an NBC News exclusive. We will take you live inside Russian annex Crimea. NBC's Keir Simmons brings us his new reporting as Ukrainian forces look to take back the peninsula held by Putin since 2014. You're watching me at the press now. Welcome back. The new House Select Committee on China will hold its first hearing tonight as tensions between Washington and Beijing escalate. Notably, concerns about China are a rare area of bipartisan agreement on Capitol Hill as the committee looks to address a range of issues, including military challenges, economic competitiveness and human rights. Chairman of the China Committee, Mike Gallagher, telling The Washington Post tonight's hearing will kick off a two-year effort to map out a way to, quote, selectively decouple the U.S. and Chinese economies. Joining me now is a member of that China Select Committee, Congressman Dan Newhouse. Congressman Newhouse, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you for having me, Kristen, and putting some light on this very, very important issue. Absolutely. Well, let's start right there. And with tonight's primetime hearing, what do you hope will be accomplished tonight and with this hearing overall and with the well, committee overall, I should say? Well, um, this is our first hearing, as you know, and it's in the his historic hearing room where the Watergate uh, hearings were held a, a generation ago. So that tells you how significant and important that this is to the United States Congress and to the country. And titled uh, the, the threat that communist Chinese party um, poses to the United States, this hearing I'm hoping and I'm looking for those things that we maybe are aware of and maybe things that we are not that pose a threat to our country. And um, I'm hoping also that we can learn some of the weaknesses that we as a country um, share 
that, that make us in a, in a more precarious position because of those threats that we're going to learn about. There, there's a lot of information here for, I understand, non-government witnesses from various walks of life. So this should be very, very interesting. Congressman, there is a lot of talk about bipartisanship, and you point out that it's held in the same hearing room as the Watergate hearings were held. Do you think this will truly be a bipartisan effort that we will look back in two years and say that this did truly live up to the spirit of bipartisanship? I'm very hopeful that that's exactly the case. You know, I'm very good friends with most everybody on the committee. The, the leadership uh, of both the Republicans and the Democrats in the House chose what I consider very serious-minded, sober individuals that are, want to take a hard look at these issues. There are not going to be a lot of uh, uh, bomb throwers, a, a lot of headline makers, people that are in it just to appear on news programs like this, but to make sure that we get down to uh, the important facts and, more importantly, what we as a country do in response after learning the challenges that uh, we see from com the Communist Party in China. And when you talk about potential actions, I wonder if there is already any discussion about potential legislation, for example, that you may want to get passed over these next two years to address some of the concerns that will undoubtedly be aired. Well, being this first hearing is, our, uh, is going on tonight, we're going to be learning about all of those uh, opportunities, or I should say obligations, that we as a country should, should undertake in order to better prepare ourselves for a very competitive environment with a, a, an economic and military power like we see in China. So I'm anticipating that there will be some things that we'll want to do to improve and strengthen those weaknesses that we're going to learn about. Um, so yes, stay tuned for some, I think, some very important concrete work ahead. The committee chairman, Mike Gallagher, said the committee will try to map a way to, quote, selectively decouple the U.S. and Chinese economies. A lot of Members of the business community are saying, how is that going to work? We've been told to do business with China over the past several years. How realistic is that goal? Well, I think we learned over the last couple of years during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic that we are inordinately dependent on foreign sources for some, some very important uh, items in this country. And I think we need to be smarter about that, be more strategic, be less dependent, particularly if those sources are from countries that are not necessarily our best friends, uh, because that really puts us in a precarious position, whether you're talking about uh, face masks or hand sanitizer or critical minerals that are necessary for uh, advancing our manufacturing industry into the future. So I think there's some strategic things that we can do to partially decouple economically from China and, and spread our business around the globe. I think that that would have a lot of benefits uh, in other ways as well. So uh, that's one of the areas that I'm, I'm hopeful that we can make some progress in. I do want to ask you about the Biden administration's stated concerns that China is considering sending uh, lethal aid to Russia to aid its war in Ukraine. If that were to take place, what do you think the repercussions should be? What should the consequences be? Well, that would be a very concerning situation if we found that Russia and China were teaming up against the West in, in Ukraine. And I think that that's, that's not where we want to go. That's not where we want to end up. 
we're, we're hearing from uh, Xi Jinping privately or in public settings, I should say, uh, something quite opposite than what some are saying we're hearing in closed door meetings. And so kind of a confusing um, message that we're getting to this point, but that's something that we're we've got to work very hard to avoid finding ourselves into that position. G given the confusion, should the Biden administration uh, reveal what and declassify the intelligence behind their concerns? Did they? No, would you like to see them? They oh. have not yet declassified. Do you want the Biden administration to declassify the intelligence that they say leads them to believe that China is considering giving lethal aid to Russia? So I think at this point, what definitely has to happen is members of Congress need to be more educated, more aware uh, of what the situation actually is so that we can make intelligent decisions on how best to prepare and best how to how to respond. And I think at that point, uh, then then we can make those determinations on what further actions should be taken. So, and just to try one more time, would you like the administration to actually declassify the intelligence? Is that the right move? Is that the most transparent move for the American people? So I, I think, Kristen, on so many different issues that this administration has, uh, looking at the COVID-19 origins and the things that were kept from the American public, I think absolutely we need to have more transparency. And this is this China-Russia relationship is something that the American people absolutely want to know more about. Yes. Well, and you take me to my next question, which is the Department of Energy's findings with low confidence they have assessed that COVID likely originated and mistakenly leaked out of a lab in Wuhan. What do you make of those findings? The Biden administration says um, that there is no broad agreement still on where this came from. Do you think we'll ever conclusively know? You know, it's interesting, you know, over the last several years, uh, myself and many of my constituents and many of my colleagues, too, have been making the same assertions. It looked to, to us that the evidence was quite clear. Uh, as to the or, or originations of the COVID-19 virus, uh, and we were we were laughed off as being, you know, unreasonable. Or you're just jumping to conclusions, and now all of a sudden, it seems to be from different sources, either a, a varying degrees of confidence that yes, this is in fact what happened. And so I, I think we truly do need from this administration more clarity, more transparency. The American people deserve to know, and then we as a country and the rest of the world as well will know better how to respond uh, so that we can prevent this from ever happening again. And just to underscore, the White House says there's still no broad consensus on the origins, but that is a new data point. Congressman Newhouse, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, the Supreme Court weighs the future of President Biden's plan for student loan forgiveness. We're live outside the court with what happened in today's arguments. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. The Supreme Court heard arguments today in two cases that could significantly impact the millions of Americans who were hoping for student loan debt relief. Under the Biden administration plan, an estimated $400 billion in federal loans and grants would be forgiven for more than 40 million borrowers. Six Republican-led states and separately two student loan borrowers are challenging that plan, arguing that the administration overstepped its constitutional authority. 
outside of the court, loan relief advocates, students and lawmakers rallied against the challenges. The plan was first announced last August and was temporarily halted by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals only two months later. And depending on how the court rules, today's hearing could mean it never goes into effect. NBC News Supreme Court reporter Lawrence Hurley joins me to break down what we heard from today's arguments. Lawrence, thanks so much for joining me. So let's just start right there. What were the big takeaways from today's arguments on both sides? Well, I think going into the arguments, it was pretty clear that, you know, the conservative majority on the court, which is always skeptical of these broad assertions of federal power, would probably feel the same way about this plan. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, we got a six to three conservative majority. Uh, at least five of them were quite skeptical that uh, President Biden has the authority to uh, implement this program. Uh, there was only one of those six who maybe suggested that the challenges don't have legal standing to bring the case. And then the three liberal justices seem pretty supportive of the Biden administration. So we're sort of heading towards what's likely to be another of these court rulings against the Biden administration, as we have seen on a couple of other cases like the vaccine or test mandate for large businesses during COVID-19. Mm. I wonder, because there has been so much discussion about the impact on borrowers. You have some people making the argument, didn't go to college, saying, hey, wait a minute, no one's helping me with my debts. Yeah. How much was that a focus today, the impact on the borrowers, the real world impact? Yeah, I think uh, Liberal Justice Sonia Sotomayor was probably the only justice who really got into the impact on borrowers of student loans, um, talking about the difficulties that people have faced paying off those loans during the pandemic. Um, and But other justices, some of the conservative justices, actually raised this other issue of like, what about people who don't have student loans, who maybe have other types of loans that they are not getting relief from? And is it fair to give relief to some people who have loans, but not other people? So that's sort of an argument against the, the plan uh, and, and in favor of this argument that maybe Congress should have authorized it. And talk a little bit about the HEROES Act and how that came into play. Yeah, so the Biden administration says its legal authority comes from this 2003 law called the HEROES Act, which allows for the Department of Education to give some relief to borrowers during a national emergency. Um, but the challengers say that law didn't anticipate such a broad program. And the Supreme Court justices on the conservative side seem to agree that if Congress intended for the Department of Education to give sort of sweeping relief to, you know, 40 million plus people, that uh, that program should have been specifically authorized by Congress. And Lawrence, just quickly before you go, you've been there at the court. You know this court so well. What is the mood like? We talked about the fact that you had advocates on both sides of this issue rallying outside of the high court today. Yeah, it's one of those cases, you know, you get a few of these each term where uh, there's a big rally outside the court and a lot of energy um, from the, the people protesting outside. Of course, inside the courtroom, it's very quiet and sober and no, no one's really paying attention to any of that stuff. <laughs> They're paying attention to the arguments. Lawrence Hurley, thank you so much. We really appreciate your joining us, your great reporting, your great analysis. Good to see Thanks. you. Thanks a lot. And thank you for being with us this hour. Chuck will be back tomorrow with more Meet the Press Now. NBC News Now coverage continues with my friend Hallie Jackson right now.